I want to speak today on tree of life compassion. I was going to say radical compassion, but tree of life is where we've been. It's really getting our compassion from heaven and not ourselves. Getting our compassion from Jesus and not ourselves. There's a huge difference between the two. And we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to read from verse 35 to the first five verses in chapter 10. Those of you who like to know how books are structured, one of the ways to look at the book of Matthew is to see it in terms of five teaching blocks on the kingdom of God. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. That's the kingdom of God manifesto. And there's lots of manifestos going through our doors at the moment, some hoping to be in power, some wishfully thinking they're going to be in power, and some most definitely will be in power. I had a slip of the tongue the other day when I said, I think we need to pray for Margaret uh, uh, Theresa May. <laughs> and uh, no guesses where I think this election's going. That's the kingdom manifesto, and it's how we live. Matthew chapter 10, which we're going to dip into, that is kingdom commissioning, how the kingdom of God is commissioned, how you and I are commissioned to do the things that Jesus did on earth with him today. Matthew chapter 18 is a teaching block on how the church relates to the kingdom. And again, we haven't got time to look at all of these, but it's kingdom church dynamics, Matthew 18. Matthew 24 and 25, that's another teaching block, and that is the kingdom come, eschatology, second coming, and all the things that evolve when and will happen as the kingdom of God unfolds and Jesus returns again. I missed one out, and that was Matthew 13, and that is parables of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like. They're the five blocks all about the kingdom. We're going to read a few verses that will take us into this second block. What does it look like to be commissioned as Jesus' hands and feet in his world. And we're going to pick it up from chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Uh, ignore the chapter divisions, they're not helpful. The immediate flow of truth is this. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And then you've got the list of names. And then we'll come back to verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you put the first little part of that slide on, Graham, that I gave... So we stick to it. Is it coming up? Next one. Now, I wouldn't even attempt to try and pronounce this Greek word, but I put it up because this is actually the Greek word for compassion. 
Now, the reason I'm not a Greek student, this isn't to sort of parade knowledge, it's to demonstrate and illustrate a very important point. The English language is limited in how it tries to explain what biblical language sometimes is saying. So if I say to you the word love, some of you might not know there are four Greek words for love that's only one word in our English. If I say to you life, you won't know there are three words for life, for one word, life in English. And this word, now, John, you went to Bible college, didn't you? <laughs> so would you like to come to the front and in your best preaching language, uh, explain what this word means. I, I, I can give it a go, and I think it is splagizomai. I think it's splagizomai. Is that close? Oh, round of applause. Does anybody want to have a go? Because one of these, the thing about these words is, none of us are experts, so we don't know whether it's right anyway. But, but the thing is, this word... What is important isn't actually the, whether you know the Greek, it's actually whether we've got the life of what the word carries in us. And what it means is deep empathy from the very bowels of our being, we are moved to act with compassion, with mercy, on and towards people. It's completely different to human sentiment, I'll look at that in a minute. Now, this week, I was lying on my settee reading the paper, I began to burst into tears when I was reading about what had happened to an 11-year-old Muslim girl at Drayton Manor Park. Because she was on a school trip, quite probably after exams, she fell out of her ride, and she died. And I can't explain it, I just found myself spontaneously weeping. What a tragic, tragic end to a life. And I started to think, and I, this does happen to me from time to time, and Drayton Manor is particularly personal because I only live spitting distance from it for the first 12 years of my life. Real spitting distance for the first three, just slight spitting distance for the rest of the 12 in Sutton Coalfield. Um, and I started asking questions, Lord, this can't, this can't be your will for this girl. This could not possibly be how you wanted this girl's life to end. And I began to start to think about her parents and how they would feel. And all the lost dreams. And the photographs in the lounge. And the celebration probably that they would have had if she'd have done well in a sense. And the holiday they might have been going on this summer. And then brothers and sisters that she might have had. I began to weep, and it was uncontrollable for a while, because I believe, because it was, it was with the Lord, it wasn't just a spontaneous thing on my own. I was asking the Lord, how do you feel about this? Why do these things happen? And you've got some pretty shocking, ghastly theologies that say everything that happens to us is sovereignly ordained by God. Well, I want to say that is rubbish. This was not some arbitrary will of God that this girl would lose her life at the age of 11 in the way she did. It's too complex to go into the reasons why I think this, but you can assure you I have thought this through a lot. And we sometimes think that God is like a, a puppet master, just pulling strings. And sometimes we find great comfort in that. It's a false comfort. It's like an anesthetic that gets pumped into us so that when something goes wrong, 
We've got this wrong anesthetic we can fall on. Oh, well, God's in this somehow. He was in my mother dying of cancer at the age of eight. He was in this lady who lost her daughter to Drayton Manor Park. And that kind of God is not the God reflected in these passages that we're going to read. In our theology, we start with Jesus, the incarnation, and we stretch him right back to the first verse of Genesis, and we stretch the incarnation right through to the last verse of Revelation, and we put everything in and through that lens of who Christ is. And that's when we begin to start to experience and understand who the Father really is. And it's something that Jeremiah experienced. I will read this, and it's, if you've got a Bible, it is worth turning to. Jeremiah 9, verses 17 to 18. And this is what it says. Very important, the first part of this verse 17, because it establishes this is God speaking, not Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come, and send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us, plural, us. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears. Our eyelids flow with water. For those of you who are not familiar with this book, Jeremiah is a prophet into the southern kingdom of Israel. He's one of the last prophets and he's there watching Jerusalem effectively be destroyed. And God is there with him and he's weeping with Jeremiah. If you go to the verse, it's very important sometimes to put a good magnifying glass on the scriptures. Verse 18, let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears, that our eyelids flow with water. <coughs> Whose tears are these weeping over Jerusalem? Whose tears are they? <coughs> I've already given you a clue. Whose tears are they? They're Jeremiah's and they're God's. And what God is weeping over is his plan for Jerusalem and for Israel is gone. It's broken. He hasn't sovereignly decreed it would be destroyed. He's weeping over what's happened because the people of God have chosen not to follow him over and over and over again. Jesus over Jerusalem, oh, that I would long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And some of us may have been dealt some pretty shocking cards in life. Things that have been said to us, things that have been done to us, and our question may have been, where is God in all of this? Why has God allowed this? Why has God done this? And for some of us, we need to shed a little bit more light on the scriptures with the Holy Spirit because it's not been God who's been the author of a lot of your circumstances. I don't believe in karma, that good things happen to good people, bad to bad. The book of Job, amongst many, suggests that actually bad things can happen to good people. And it's not a sovereign act of God. But we like to play this comfort blanket. And I'm going to suggest, actually, it's a false comfort. The real comfort is finding that we have a God of incredible compassion. And when we find him as our comfort blanket, when we find him as the anchor to our contexts and souls, then we really do find life. 
and life to the full. I remember, I may have said this to you before, and this, this happens every now and again to me. I, I'm not, I know I'm not the only one, I know this. But I can remember being in an ice cream van in Bournemouth with David and Amy and Fiona once. And there was a guy in front of me with his kids. And I just felt an overwhelming, just an overwhelming flood of tears welling. I didn't cry publicly, but I can assure you I'm not ashamed to if I actually feel it's right to let it out. And I can't explain it. It was just I felt the compassion and the love of God for this man. You were there, weren't you, Fiona? remember talking about it. I I couldn't get off. Looking back, I wish I'd have actually had the guts to speak to him and talk to him. But I was chilling out on holiday anyway, and I didn't. And could give you many other stories, and I'm sure many of you could come and testify to many stories about this, but this compassion that is, if we can go to the next one, uh, Graham, this compassion, it has its origin in what I've called the Zoe life of God. It's a God thing. It's not mere human sympathy. There are three words for life in the Bible. There is bios, which is your biological life, There is suke, which is your soul, emotional life. And then there is this word zoe, zoe life, and that is unique to God alone. So if you look at the book of Genesis, chapter 1, there's lots of life being created, but there's one life that stands out over and beyond and above every other life that is created, and that is the life of God that has never known any beginning or no end. And when we read through the Old and the New Testament, every now and again we will come across this wonderful phrase that our God is slow to anger, full of compassion, and abounding in mercy. And in this particular passage here that we've read, we see Jesus, and it's a lovely verse, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion, that's this Greek word, which isn't just a little bit of empathy, or I'm feeling sorry for you, or I feel a bit sorry, It's actually something that comes right deep down within. This is coming deep down within the bowels of God, within the the depths of who God is. It's not just simply a little bit of overflow. This is the essence of who he is. Overwhelmed with compassion, overwhelmed with a desire to actually get people out of exile and back into relationship with the Father. And that is the whole purpose of Jesus' mission and his compassion. It is to get us out of exile back into the Garden of Eden, to get out of exile back into the Tree of Life, to get us out of exile back into a relationship with a Heavenly Father who has this incredible compassion towards us. Go back to the overhead. Now, the context here is that national Israel has no shepherds in Jesus' eyes. These are sheep without shepherds. Now, if you were a law teacher or a Pharisee, you'd be thinking, hang on, we are. What do you mean there aren't any teachers or shepherds? We are. But Jesus is no, he's very clear. This is a nation that has totally lost the plot. And Jesus comes in fulfillment of scriptures in Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 34, I could give you loads. He comes as the ultimate shepherd of this nation. Israel began with the man Jacob and is fulfilled in the man Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate shepherd for this nation. And if you want to go to Hosea 4, because there's an application here that's not just for what Jesus was seeing in his day, but also for our day, if we bridge a bit, if we 
bring it into 21st century context, but Hosea, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom. And if you're looking for Hosea, it's the first of the minor prophets. So Hosea, if you don't know what the minor prophets are, they come after the major prophets. And if you don't know that, well, actually, Andy and Jackie are doing a really good Bible overviews, Andy and uh, Tracy. But uh, Hosea, we'll read chapter 5, uh, chapter 4, rather, verse 1 to 5. And this is Hosea speaking on behalf of God how he saw the northern kingdom. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault and let none reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest." It goes on, verse 10 of chapter 5. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. If we put the acetate back up again, that would be helpful. If it's not there. Back in the days of Hosea, 700 years earlier, no shepherds. Shepherds only feeding themselves. The civic and national life of Israel was at rock bottom. The northern kingdom went into exile, so did the southern kingdom. Jesus is looking at this kingdom, looking at Israel, and he's looking at it through lenses of compassion. And he's saying, these are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what does that mean? How do we apply that today here? What are the national and civic leaders of this nation like at the moment? What are they doing? What are we allowing to happen? Well, I'll suggest what's happening. It's in Hosea 5, verse 10. Don't put it up or read it. It's where the princes move boundary stones. So what does that mean in practice? Well, on gender, let's move the boundary stones. And you can have one of 26 options. That's going to cause confusion. People are going to be like sheep without a shepherd. Young people are growing up thinking, who am I? I think it's shocking, and I think as Christians, if we aren't feeling the compassion of God on this, we need to get wired to do so. It's an unraveling of his beautiful creation. It's treading underfoot the image of God. It's making a mockery. And that's not the only one. We'll have politicians in all different guises over the next four weeks that will tell us, they won't say it in these words, but this is what they'll say, money is more important than people. If you vote for us, we will save your pensions. If you vote for us, the economy will flourish. If you vote for us, we'll lower taxes. If we'll vote, you'll vote for us, you will prosper. Now, there's nothing wrong in prospering. But the history of this nation post-war, and I'm speaking as one who observes politics, not just a random soundbite, there has been progressive party on either side that have professed to put people first, but the real issue is they put your pocket and your pans and pence first. They want your pans and pence first before they want your heart. They want to try and win you with money, not with genuine compassion and empathy. There are some who are genuine, but most parties, since 1945, it's been pans over people. And 
when Jesus is looking on here, he's looking on at a nation who have shepherds and sheep, uh, shepherds and leaders that were lining their own pockets. What did Jesus do when he went into the temple and saw what was going on on two occasions, not one but two? What did he do? You're right, you know it. He turned the tables over, he turned the money tables over. Why did he do that? Because one of the reasons, the people of God, the leaders, the shepherds, the teachers, the priests, they were putting money and economics in front of people and before people. And it was a stumbling block. There's plenty more I could say. We haven't got time. Now, if we move on to the next part, Graham. Next one. What is Jesus' answer to this crowd who don't have any sheep, uh, who don't have any shepherds or any leaders that are pointing and revealing to, to the way of God. Why it was so serious for Israel is that Israel was the jewel in God's crown. They were the one that were given the oracles. They were the one that were given the land. They were the ones that were given the temple, the law. And God spoke and chose and called out this nation of Israel to be a light to the Gentile nations, and they'd completely blown it. That's why it was so serious. And Jesus came to fulfill what they couldn't do. And as he looked on and saw no shepherds, no leaders, the answer was that he gave himself fully and totally in incarnation. What that means? His own life. He is the great shepherd. He is the fulfillment of everything Israel couldn't do. He is the light to those of us who are Gentiles. He is the bread of life. He is the law written on our heart. He is the vine, we are the branches. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life, etc., etc., etc. And this shepherd, giving himself as he does, and I, don't, I haven't got time to look at the verse, John 10, 11, he lays down his life. It's this compassion that is coming from the heart of the Father through the Son to reveal what God is like to us. And I've already made reference to some of the times where I felt this sense of incredible compassion towards people. I wish I could say it happens all the time and I could turn it on like a tap. Jesus did, because he was the walking incarnation of it. But there's a huge difference between human sympathy and compassion that comes from heaven. Ian Botham was sympathetic to those children who were dying of leukemia. He got injured, was in a hospital ward in 1977. He walked through a hospital ward and saw these children playing. And someone said accidentally to him, they won't be here, some of them, next year. And he was totally moved by that. He's not a Christian, but he was motivated because he's made in God's image. He was motivated and moved to do something. And that was what is behind all the walks that you sometimes see him or hear of him doing in the past from Land's End to John O'Groats. I think he deserved his knighthood for that more than his cricket stuff on the field, although he could have got one for that as well. And that's human sympathy. The problem with human sympathy is it runs out. Or it's not really serving the Lord, or it can often be serving ourselves or be coming from our own strength and our own resourcing. 
Some of us as Christians may have a radical vision for compassion in different parts of the world, and we get involved to compensate for what's lacking in our relationship with God. Not all motivation by compassion is, is divine compassion. There is a huge difference. Divine compassion, the Lord overwhelms you with how he feels. His yoke is light and gentle and easy to carry. You feel the burden, all right. You feel the pain and the hurt. I did this week for this 11-year-old girl who died. But it doesn't leave you exhausted. It doesn't leave you thinking the problem's bigger than God or that you're the only one that can actually solve the world's problems. It doesn't leave you in that state of exhaustion. Human sympathy can, because sometimes when we operate purely out of our own strength, we're driven, and we're driven sometimes with Christian language behind it, but then we wonder why the project gets burnt out, or we get burnt out, or things run aground, or it all falls apart. And that can happen, even sometimes for many of us who can be involved in things with the best of motives, but if it's not being empowered by the Holy Spirit, by this Zoe life of God, it can wear us out. But it's that compassion that is behind Jesus' authority, the real stuff that comes from the Father. And he's a shepherd in the context of harvest. Now, it's interesting, this is the first reference in this passage we read, sheep and shepherds. It's the first pastoral reference in Jesus' ministry. And it's in the context of lost sheep. We often see pastoring as pastoring those in the church. And that's true. It's important that we do that well. But there's far more people on the outside of the church than on the inside. There's far more people in this city that need pastoring than those of us just on the inside of a church. Now, if we don't believe that, I think there's something that needs to be looked at and examined again. Where are most of the people today in this city? Are they in church? What percentage, I can tell you roughly what I think the percentage of the population of this city is in church today. What, have a guess. Just, just chuck out some numbers. Five, any, any move on five? No, a bit higher than three, a bit higher than five. A bit like Andy Lester last week in the auction. A bit lower than ten. It's actually about 7%. So that's based on statistics that were done... Actually, they might be out of date. It might be low. It was actually when Peter Owen Clark was around. We had this statistic. Remember, in Winchester, we looked at how many... We did a census of how many people were in church. Now, that may be lower now. The point is, if it's lower, it's even more shocking. If we think that pastoral shepherding is purely to those of us who sit on church pews like this. Let's say it is 5%. There are 95% people out there who are sheep without a shepherd. We can be their shepherds, all of us. Because in this particular passage we read, what Jesus said was this. Let's go back to it, Matthew 9, nearly finished. He says the sheep are sheep without shepherd. And then he says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, verse 38, the Lord of the, send, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. My vision for this church was shaped by a theologian called Jim Thwaites. And his book was The Church Beyond the Congregation. There's only one other person to, I, to my knowledge who's read the book in this uh, church, and that's Dave, I think. You've, you've definitely read that, haven't you? And his vision 
and I was inspired, I heard it firsthand in Leeds in 1998, was to equip every single person in his church to be effective shepherds of those on the outside of the church, using this language. To fill up media, to fill up education, to fill up hospitals, to fill up police stations, to fill up fire stations, and every other structure there is in a city with people who love the Lord and who are workers of the harvest in the harvest field. And that motivates me. It motivated Fiona myself. That's part of the reason why she's teaching in Newlands. Because we believe in marketplace theology. What I mean by that is that it's in the place where you spend most of your time that actually you can be most effective in being a lover, a compassionate harvester in the harvest field. And I get a thrill out of every story Fiona comes back and tells me about how she has prayed, how she has lived, how she has served children in her school. Partly because 25 years ago, I thought of going into teaching myself, and I didn't, but Fiona has. And there are loads of opportunities out there to serve the 95%. Alpha's not the only one. It's one. And how Jesus... how Jesus commissions us, this Matthew chapter 10, it's the commissioning in the kingdom of God. It's commissioning in the context of compassion. He's modeled it. He's wept, he's modeled, he's incarnated in front of these disciples. This is how I am towards these lost sheep. Now you go and be the same. You go and do what I've just modeled to you. That's why I can't take this theology that says God capriciously takes an 11-year-old girl and swings her out of a, in a sovereign act. You'd be surprised if you think people don't think that, because they do. There are some very, very well-known names that would actually say that is an act of God. I don't believe it is. And it's this compassion that is actually to be the motivation behind everything we're doing. Oh, that I would not be a tap that's turned off most times. I'd like to be turned on more often than I am. Now, I'll finish with this. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out. That word sent out in Greek is ekbalo, and I do know that's how it's pronounced, it's ekbalo. And it's the same verse, same word in verse 34 of chapter 9 when Jesus is told that he's casting out, he casts out demons, that word casts out is ekbalo. It's where we get ballistic from, ballistic missile. It's a very powerful sending out. It's a very powerful motivational drive to be sent out. But the motivational drive is the compassion of God. It's not to have a sort of firework display with signs and wonders. It's the motivation of compassion. It's the motivation to incarnate and model the life and compassion of the Good Shepherd to people around us. Amen? And it's that kind of sending out. Now, it's that compassion that is behind Jesus' healing ministry. It's behind his deliverance ministry. It's behind his preaching and teaching ministry. Why he had such tremendous success, if you're going to use that word, is because he had such enormous compassion. Now, sometimes we will see things happen around us with only a modicum of compassion because God's gracious. 
But I want to pray and close this meeting by praying and asking God to give us moments this week where we feel how God feels about the people around us. And that isn't just simply an intellectual exercise where we, from the heart, begin to feel how God feels. I felt it, as I say, this week, particularly for that Muslim girl. But I'd love to be able to say I do that all the time, but I don't. Let's pray. Let's stand and pray in the presence of the Lord.